This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The transgender revolution destroys everything and everyone that it touches. The sexual revolution began with contraception. Then it spread as revealing clothing became popular. Later, many people began to accept the idea that men and women could live together without being married. That acceptance added fuel to the idea that procured abortions should be legalized. Then, the idea that homosexuals should be able to express their preferences openly became popular. From there, it was a small step towards so-called homosexual marriage. A single question prompted each of these disastrous steps. Why should I care about the private decisions of other people? At each step, a brave few answered that question. It destroys the individual, the family, and society. And each time the sexual revolutionaries hired lawyers, went to courts, got what they wanted, and then went on to the next step. Now the battlefield has shifted to the realm of so-called transgenderism. Once again, the battle is engaged. The revolutionaries head for the courts and the legislature, invoking the same arguments that have carried the day so many times. And we are here, carrying the banners of decency, morality, tradition, and family. Why do we do it? Because our loyalty to our Lord and Our Lady demands it. So we march into the transgender battlefield and boldly speak in favor of all the revolutionaries are trying to demolish. In that blessed light, Mr. John Horvath spells out that this is what will come after the transgender revolution. The sexual revolution must be understood as a process or else it becomes incomprehensible. Those who promote it will never be satisfied with its present phase. They will always be pushing the envelope to the next new aberration. Few people ask, however, what the new sexual frontier will be. No one should be shocked at what will come next. Nothing should be ruled out. The only exception to this rule is a return to chastity and modesty. Such moral practices are deemed impossible to practice, even though they were observed for centuries during the times of Christian civilization. Two things are certain. There will always be new behavior, and its introduction will be gradual. This revolution always progresses only to the extent that it finds acceptance by society. It thrives by wearing down the resistance of moral structures, habits, and practices. It finally seeks to give each new phase the protection of the law. When one aberration is accepted, everyone thinks that there will be no further developments. However, This lie is soon unmasked when the next phase is proposed. Thus, the present phase of the sexual revolution is the transgender agenda, a step that was proposed immediately after the imposition of so-called same-sex marriage. The transgender agenda allows people of one sex to mutilate themselves surgically and chemically to appear like the other sex. It also permits people to self-identify as any number of imaginary genders that express their psychological state. Finally, transgender activists seek to get the government to recognize, finance, and legally protect their declared state. 
It even threatens those who refuse to accept the charade with penalties. As this transgender process advances, the natural question is, what comes after the transgender phase? One new practice on the horizon, and not the only one, is legally protected sexual groupings. Indeed, the American Psychological Association, APA, has just formed a task force to promote what it calls, quote, consensual non-monogamy relationships, unquote, or CNM. The APA is also circulating a petition seeking to secure legally protected class status for individuals with multiple sex partners. In its newly created Facebook page, the task force does not hide its agenda. It openly seeks to promote, quote, awareness and inclusivity about consensual non-monogamy and diverse expressions of intimate relationships, unquote. The post defines this to include, quote, people who practice polyamory, open relationships, swinging, relationship anarchy, and other types of ethical non-monogamous relationships, unquote. The meaning is clear. The next sexual frontier is not independent of the present LGBTQ plus efforts to gain acceptance. It is part of the same process. Thus, the APA's Division on Sexual Orientation and Gender Diversity directs the project. A team of more than 85 professionals is working on 12 initiatives. It will build upon its past gender diversity activism and extend its concepts to multi-personal sexual relationships that they hope will be legally validated. Quote, Finding love and or sexual intimacy is a central part of most people's life experience, states the task force's Facebook page. However, the ability to engage in desired intimacy without social or medical stigmatization is not a liberty for all. This task force seeks to address the needs of people who practice consensual non-monogamy, including their intersecting marginalized identities, unquote. The nation's premier association of psychologists is clearly setting policy, not treating illnesses. Its goal of making any consensually non-monogamous relationships acceptable follows the same template as that used for the free love, homosexual, and transgender phases of the sexual revolution. In this case, the old binary way of looking at relationships in terms of couples is now outdated. Legal recognition is no longer sought between a man and a woman, or even a man and a man. Now it is between a man, a woman, another man, and any number of others who want to be included. The goal is clearly to make any sexual grouping mainstream. The task force will develop fact sheets, brochures, reading lists, and therapy recommendations. It will treat what was once considered seriously disordered and sinful as a means of, quote, finding love, unquote. The onus of wrong is shifted from those who participate in these relationships 
to those who are not inclusive enough to accept them. The social stigma once attached to this sexual anarchy is now shifted to those who refuse to accept it as normal. With consensual non-monogamous relationships being the next major step in the process, they pave the way for worse things. This is sexual anarchy. To understand the sexual revolution, one must see it as a process leading to anarchy and nihilism. Its revolutionaries will always be searching for ever more anarchical manifestations of sexuality. They will always give free rein to unbridled passions on the path to self-annihilation. All taboos must be overturned. Everyone must accept all behaviors which must be given the protection of the law. Thus, transgender and consensual non-monogamous relationships are only transitional phases. After them, there will be other moral aberrations to follow. Incest, masochism, pedophilia perhaps, or other practices that already exist in macabre subcultures on the dark side of sexuality. The only effective way to fight against the sexual revolution is with Christian morality. Only the Church has the moral principles, practices, and grace to overcome the depravity that can come from fallen nature. That is why the culture war is so important and must never be abandoned. Until recently, one of the most common expressions among the sexual revolutionaries was consenting adults. However, the transgender revolution often uses children to achieve its goals. Much of the persuasion and grooming of these young people is happening in their schools. The long-settled premise that children should be raised according to the standards and beliefs of their parents is in danger of being overridden in the name of the so-called sexual liberty. However, it may be that some victims of this phase of the sexual revolution are the schools themselves. Mr. Edwin Benson charts that course in his essay, How the Transgender Revolution is Destroying Schools. The sexual revolutionaries of the 60s and their ideological descendants are all a Twitter. On August 7, 2020, in official disregard of the Sixth and Ninth Commandments, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decision guaranteed that so-called transgender students can use the restrooms and locker rooms for the sex of their choice. This is happening despite the rapidly developing scientific evidence that shows such moves to be harmful. The new legal development confirms many parents' worst fears. Boys will be allowed to use the girls' facilities based on nothing more than their, or their parents', contentions that they identify as girls. The contrary will also be true. Thus, Gender ideology triumphs over the public good. An unimaginable situation has now become obligatory. In the states under the jurisdiction of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, Virginia, Maryland, West Virginia, North and South Carolina, parents, students, school personnel, and state officials who object have absolutely no voice. In part, 
This decision rests on the Supreme Court's recent Bostock decision, which is a case of judicial activism disguised as textualism. The High Court denied employers the ability to fire or punish employees who claim transgender status. Having determined that such workplace discrimination is not allowed, it was a short step to the schoolhouse door. A CNN report quoted the judge's decision, quote, After the Supreme Court's recent decision in Bostock v. Clayton County, we have little difficulty holding that the bathroom policy discriminated on the basis of sex, unquote. Forbes magazine quoted lawyers for the American Civil Liberties Union, which supported the student involved in the case. Quote, Trans people belong in schools. Trans people belong everywhere. Unquote. The reaction at Politico was equally jubilant. Quote, a federal appeals court dealt a major victory Wednesday for proponents of transgender rights, ruling that it is unconstitutional and a violation of Title IX for schools to bar students from using the bathroom that matches their gender identity, unquote. The article also quoted U.S. Circuit Judge Henry Floyd, who wrote the majority opinion. At the heart of this appeal is whether equal protection and Title IX can protect transgender students from school bathroom policies that prohibit them from affirming their gender. We join a growing consensus, of course, in holding that the answer is resoundingly yes. Unquote. Ironically, the court's opinion differs sharply from the consensus of a growing number of doctors. The leftists love talking about following the science. However, these scientists hold that the psychological underpinnings of the court's decision are seriously flawed. Biological science is irrefutable about sex change. There is no such thing as being transgender. An individual's sex is determined at conception. Every one of a person's millions of chromosomes confirms that determination. The medical science behind gender affirmation is even shakier. The novel and mostly untested hormonal therapies produce uneven results. Some methods are so new that doctors know little to nothing about their long-term effects. They have some impact in altering an individual's secondary sexual characteristics, like hair patterns, muscle mass, body fat composition, etc. However, those effects are unpredictable and vary widely among patients. Attempts to replicate the reproductive organs are entirely ineffective. Radical surgeries may create poor representations, but any change is purely superficial. A male does not become a female. He is merely mutilated. Moreover, these surgeries are irreversible. The psychological effects of such operations are even less certain. In an interview with Dr. Andre Van Maal, Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, author of The Sexual State, discussed the bad science behind the treatment. 
Dr. Van Mole is co-chair of the American College of Pediatricians Committee on Adolescent Sexuality and co-chairs the Transgender Task Force for the Christian Medical and Dental Association. He compared the scientific environment surrounding this transgender issue to the use of lobotomies to treat medical illnesses during the 50s. Their discussion begins with the American Journal of Psychiatry, AJP's, retraction of a study published in 1982. For almost two decades, the retracted research was used to support the idea that surgery was an effective treatment for those suffering from gender dysphoria. For a major medical journal to retract an article on a major medical issue is rare, virtually unprecedented. This retraction casts doubt on the pseudoscience called gender affirmation. Dr. Van Mull also pointed out that gender dysphoria can stem from adverse childhood events and traumas, mental health problems, drug use, and developmental conditions like autism. Sex change surgery does not improve the mental or physical health of the patient. He explained the effect, quote, Where's the call to truly help those suffering from gender dysphoria to accept themselves? Affirmation of internal gender conflict doesn't solve the underlying problems. That's when the despair kicks in, unquote. The despair that comes from these irreversible surgeries is genuine. Dr. Van Mol cited statistics that those who undergo sex change surgery are 19 times more likely to commit suicide and result in three times more psychiatric hospitalizations than those who do not undergo surgery. Indeed, the doctor cites the international standard for care in such cases. The key phrase is watchful waiting. In other words, carefully treat the underlying mental conditions, but don't take any irreversible steps. In his opinion, most patients' symptoms will desist by the age of 21. Unfortunately, the law is not on Dr. Van Mol's side. Brandon Showalter of the Christian Post reveals that a growing industry has grown up around these immoral practices. He paints a harrowing picture of vulnerable young people who fall under the influence of advocates sometimes through school clubs known as gay-straight alliances, without their parents' knowledge. These advocates adroitly use the law to remove such conditions from the influence of objecting parents. Well-heeled leftist organizations, including Planned Parenthood, presumably help these young people obtain the treatments that they, under the advocates' influence, say that they desire. This is not a pretty topic. It involves moral issues that transcend the medical complications. Many traditionally-minded people prefer to ignore such awful realities. Others are afraid of being politically incorrect concerning these practices. At the same time, fighting for morality and civilization requires information and action. The recent court decision has opened the door of the school to transgenderism in practice. 
It is long past time for this medical legal madness to stop. In 2018, an important book, The Sexual State, was written by Dr. Jennifer Roback Morris. Mr. John Horvat reviewed this book in his essay, The Sexual State, a report from the battlefield. The sexual revolution of the 60s is portrayed as a rebellion against the establishment. It was a spontaneous love fest that allowed youth to do their own thing in an atmosphere of serendipitous freedom. Women were liberated from past oppression. It set in motion other movements that advanced even greater sexual freedom. Or at least, that's the official story. Few people tell the other side of the story. This woefully skewed portrayal overlooks the millions of damaged lives. The revolutionary upheaval of the 60s radically changed America for the worst. Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse's The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along, is a book that challenges these myths and sets the record straight. The book reflects the author's academic background. It's convincingly documented and logically presented. But it reads more like a battlefield report from the front lines of the sexual revolution. She manages to insert the very real human element into the debate by passionately reminding readers of those whose lives are even now being destroyed by the myths introduced in the 60s. Dr. Morse wants to destroy these myths once and for all. One key myth is that the sexual revolution as a spontaneous moment of liberation. It was, and still is, a war with all its characteristics. There is nothing haphazard about it. It has two sides engaged in a deliberate battle for the hearts and souls of Americans. There are massive casualties in this unbloody culture war that has polarized America for the last decades. And it is not over. Dr. Morse identifies three offensives on this battlefield, which she calls the contraceptive ideology, divorce ideology, and gender ideology. Each has its philosophy, generals, and foot soldiers. Each offensive is a part of a single process in a broader plan of destruction. Each needs the other to survive and progress. Contraception separates sex from childbearing. Divorce separates sex and childbearing from marriage. Gender ideology eliminates distinctions between men and women. Dr. Morse traces the history of these offensives, attacks their weaknesses, and reveals their tactics and catchphrases. The sexual revolution was never a revolt against the establishment. It was, and is, a revolt by the liberal establishment against Christian morals. Indeed, such a massive, meticulous, and carefully planned revolution could not progress without bad elites from decadent institutions to carry it forward. 
The establishment forms a liberal culture that creates the myths, spreads the fashions, and molds the opinions that eventually pressure all to conform to their ideological mindset. It pushes the more moderate elements of society toward its goal of total, unrestrained sexual license. This revolt can also be documented and traced by the currents, media, and figures that have long pushed this agenda forward. Such an effort would never progress but for a cooperative state. Throughout history, revolutions are always carried out with state sponsorship. Even the states that the revolutionaries want to destroy often participate in their own destruction. The sexual revolution needs the vast resources and platforms of the sexual state because, quote, the premises of the sexual revolution are false, as Dr. Morse claims. All the machinery of government must be brought to bear to override human nature. To assume the state is neutral in this great battle is the height of naivete. To avoid the battle, many try to frame the debate in a way that discourages resistance. It is, for example, very easy to simplify everything by turning it into a class struggle between rich people who stand to profit from the revolution and poor people who are its unfortunate victims. There is this who-profits side to the present war, but Dr. Morse carefully avoids turning it into the center of the debate. There is also the temptation to take a fatalistic approach of throwing in the towel in the face of such overwhelming oppression. It is easy to blame everything on social forces that determine history and thus throw off any personal responsibility to oppose them. We should also not flee from the problem. There is no Benedict option in this war in which all are in some way combatants. Dr. Morse is an activist not content to watch the enemy advance unopposed. The final chapters of the book contain powerful, practical suggestions for those who want to fight. Wars have sides that need to be defined. There can be no illusions. Morse claims America is facing, quote, a world at war with our bodies, with all creation, and with God, unquote. It is a war on the human race. The stakes are indeed high. The war has its human agents. But it is a battle of good and evil, truth and error. The sexual revolution is only one important part of the overall war against what little remains of Christian civilization. Those who defend Christian morality are entirely disproportional to the fight. A lone individual would be rightly discouraged from such a challenge. However, Dr. Morse reassures the reader that, quote, the church was right all along, unquote. The church has the answers, which are laid out very clearly in the chapters refuting each ideology. Of course, not only has the church been right all along, but it has been fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil all along. The church has weathered other storms throughout her long history, 
and always wins in the end. The present culture war is no different. This particular war is violent and brutal. However, it will be defeated. The sexual revolution is one of the most important components in this war. Dr. Morse's Battlefield Report provides a much-needed perspective to clear the fog of war for those in the trenches. This concludes, The Transgender Revolution Destroys Everything and Everyone That It Touches. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our programs in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.